15. The necessary before one can become a good non-commissioned or commissioned officer of artillery. This branch of the service appeals to men of schooling. It has been claimed that the 351st Regiment contained the best educated group of Negroes in the American forces, most of them being college or high school men. They were praised highly by their officers, especially by Colonel Carpenter, when the regiment trained at Camp Meade. He said, the men showed the best desire to make good soldiers. In France they outdid their own expectations and shed glory for all. We didn't get into action until October 28th, but after that we kept at the Germans until the last day. The men of the 351st were so anxious to get into service that before they were ordered to the front they found it difficult to restrain their impatience at being held back. However, their long training in France did them a lot of good. The experience of being taught by veteran Americans and Frenchmen proving of great value when it came to actual battle. They never flinched under fire. Always stood by their guns and made the famous 155mm French guns, with which we were equipped. Fairly smoke. I have been a regular army man for many years, and had always been in command of white troops. Let me say to you that never had I commanded a more capable, courageous and intelligent regiment than this. It would give me the greatest pleasure to continue my army career in command of this regiment of Negroes. Not only was their morale splendid but they were especially ready to accept discipline. They idolized their officers and would have followed them through hell if necessary. Fortunately, though many were wounded by shrapnel and a number made ill by gas fumes, we suffered no casualties in the slain column. About 25 died of sickness and accidents, but we lost none in action. When the armistice came our hits were making such tremendous scores against the enemy that prisoners taken by the Americans declared the destruction wrought by the guns was terrific. On the last day and in the last hour of the war our guns fairly beat a rat-a-tat on the enemy positions. We let them have it while we could. Lieutenant E.A. Woolfolk, of Washington, D.C. chaplain of the regiment, said, The morale and morals of the men were splendid. Disease of the serious type was unknown. The men were careful to keep within bounds. They gave their officers no trouble. And each man strove to keep up the high standard expected of him. From the time we reached France in June, 1918. Until the time we quit that country we worked hard to maintain a clean record and we certainly succeeded. At the Moselle River, Pont de Moussome and Madeirs, the regiment first saw action. The 1st and 2nd battalions went into action immediately in the vicinity of St. Genevieve and Alton. The 3rd battalion crossed the river and went into action in the vicinity of Pont de Moussome. That was on October 31st. The balance of the regiment's service corresponds to that of the brigade, already mentioned as already gleaned from the reports of generals, regimental officers and the testimony of the chaplain of the 351st. The artillery boys created a good impression and left behind them a clean record everywhere. It has remained for the officers of the 349th Regiment to preserve this in additional documentary form in the shape of regimental orders and letters from the mayors of French towns in which the regiment stopped or was billeted. The following are some of the bulletins and letters. Headquarters 349th Field Artillery, American Expeditionary Forces, France, A. Page 0722, September 6, 1918. The following letter having been received, is published for the information of the regiment, and will be read at retreat Saturday, September 7, 1918. By order of Colonel Moore, Joseph H. McNally, Captain and Adjutant. French Republic Town Hall of Montmorillon Vienne Montmorillon August 12, 1918. Dear Colonel, 
that the occasion of your departure permit me to express to you my regrets and those of the whole population. From the very day of its arrival your regiment, by its behavior and its military appearance, it excited the admiration of all of us. Of the soldiers of yourself and your colored soldiers among us we will keep the best memory and remember your regiment as a picked one. From the beginning a real brotherhood was established between your soldiers and our people, who were glad to welcome the gallant allies of France, having learned to know them. The whole population holds them in great esteem, and we all join in saying the best of them. I hope that the white troops replacing your regiment will give us equal satisfaction, but whatever their attitude may be, they cannot surpass your 349th field artillery. Please accept the assurance of my best and most distinguished feelings. G. Defondaria Uelix, Assistant Mayor, Headquarters 349th Field Artillery, American Expeditionary Forces, France. A page 766, January 25, 1919. The following letter having been received is published for the information of the regiment. By order of Colonel O'Neill, George P. Compton, Captain and Adjutant, MAIRI de DOMFRL and Dioran Donfront, January 22, 1919. The mayor of the town of Donfront has the very great pleasure to state and declare that the 349th Regiment of the 167th Field Artillery Brigade has been billeted at Donfront from the 28th of December, 1918, to the 22nd of January, 1919, and that during this period the officers as well as the men have won the esteem and sympathy of all the population. The black officers as well as the white officers have made here many friends and go away leaving behind them the best remembrances. As to the private soldiers, their behavior during the whole time has been above all praise. It is the duty of the mayor of Donfront to bid the general, officers and men a last farewell, and to express to all his thanks and gratitude for their friendly intercourse with the civilian population. F. Berlin, Mayor, after such testimony who can doubt the Christian-like behavior and soldierly qualities of the black man, it has been noted that the artillerymen were in education considerably above the average of the Negro force abroad, but no severe criticism has been heard concerning the conduct of any of the Negro troops in any part of France. The attitude of the French people had much to do with this. The unfailing courtesy and consideration with which they treated the Negroes awoke an answering sentiment in the natures of the latter, to be treated as men, in the highest sense of the term, argued that they must return that treatment and it is not of record that they failed to give adequate return. Indeed the record tends to show that they added a little for good measure. Although it is hard to outdo a Frenchman in courtesy and the common amenities of life, this showing of Negro conduct in France takes on increased merit when it is considered that the bulk of their forces over there were selectives, men of all kinds and conditions, many of them from an environment not likely to breed gentleness, self-restraint or any of the finer virtues but the leaders and the best element seem to have had no difficulty in impressing upon the others that the occasion was a sort of a trial of their race, that they were up for view and being scrutinized very carefully. They made remarkably few false steps. Chapter XXII nor storied urn, nor mounting shaft glory not all spectacular brave forces behind the lines 325th Field Signal Battalion composed of young Negroes serial fighting suffer casualties an exciting incident colored signal battalion a success Ralph Tyler's stories burial of Negro soldier at Seymour incidents of Negro valor a word from Charles M. Schwab out of the glamour and spectacular settings of combat comes most of the glory of war the raids the forays the charges the pinning of cold steel against cold steel, the hand-to-hand encounters in trenches, 
the steadfast manning of machine guns and field pieces against deadly assault. These and kindred phases of battle are what find themselves into print, because they lend themselves so readily to the word painter or to the artist's brush. These lurid features are played to the almost complete exclusion of others, only slightly less important. There are brave forces behind the lines, sometimes in front of the lines, about which little is written or pictured. Of these the most efficient and indispensable is the signal corps. While this branch of the service was not obliged to occupy front-line trenches, make raids for prisoners, or march in battle formation into big engagements, it must not be supposed that it did not have a very dangerous duty to perform. One of the colored units that made good most decisively was the 325th Field Signal Battalion of the 92nd Division. The men of this battalion had to string the wires for telegraphic and telephonic connections at times when the enemy guns were trained upon them. Therefore, in many respects, their duty took them into situations fully as dangerous as those of the combatant units. This battalion was composed entirely of young Negroes excepting the lieutenant colonel, major and two or three white line officers. With few exceptions, they were all college or high school boys, quite a number of them experts in radio or electric engineering. Those who were not experts when the battalion was formed, became so through the training which they received. Major Spencer, who was responsible for the formation of the battalion, the only Negro signal unit in the American Army, was firm in the belief that Negroes could make good, and he remained with it long enough to see his belief become a realization. After arriving at Brest, June 19, 1918, the battalion proceeded to the tree and from that town began a four-day hike to Bourbon Els Baines. From that point it proceeded after a few days to Vicey, where the boys got their first taste of what was to be, later, their daily duties. Here the radio wireless telegraphy company received its quota of the latest type of French instruments. A battery plant was established and a full supply of wire and other equipment issued to companies B and C here, too. The infantry signal platoons of the battalion joined the outfit and shared in the training a courage test and their first introduction into a real fighting in addition to stringing wires and sending and receiving radio messages, came on the afternoon of September 27th, a party including the Colonel, Lieutenant Herbert, the latter a Negro, and some French liaison officers, advanced beyond the battalion post and soon found themselves outside the lines and directly in front of a German machine gun nest. The Colonel divided his men into small groups and advanced on the enemy's position. The sortie resulted in the signal boys capturing eight prisoners and two machine guns, but it cost the loss of Corporal Charles E. Boykin, who did not return. Two days later during a general advance, Sergeant Henry E. Moody was mortally wounded while at his post. Boykin was killed outright, while Sergeant Moody died in the hospital, these being the first two of the signal battalion to make the supreme sacrifice. On the 10th of October the 92nd Division, having taken over the Marbosch sector and relieved the 167th French Division, the 325th Field Signal Battalion took over all existing lines of communication. In the days following they installed new lines and made connections between the various units of the division. This was no small duty, when it is remembered that an army sector extends over a wide area of many square miles, including in it from 50 to 100 cities and towns. The Marbosch sector was an active front and time and time again the boys went ahead repairing lines and establishing new communications under shell fire, with no heed to personal danger inspired only by that ideal of the Signal Corps man get communication through at any cost, but get it through. On the morning of November 10th, 
when the second army launched its attack on the famous Hindenburg line before Metz. The 92nd Division held the line of Vandier Street Mitchell, Zahn and Nori. The engagement lasted for 28 hours continuously, during which time the Signal Corps functioned splendidly and as one man, keeping up communications, installing new lines and repairing those shelled out. One of the most exciting incidents was that participated in by the 1st Platoon of the Signal Battalion on the first day of the Metz Battle. Shortly after the lighter artillery barrage was lifted, the big guns of the enemy began shelling Pont de Musson. The first shells hit on the edge of the city and then they began peppering the signal battalion's station. Sergeant Rufus B. Wood of the 1st Platoon was seated in the cellar near the switchboard, Private Edgar White was operating the switchboard, and Private Clark the buzzer phone. Several officers and men were standing in the dugout cellar. Suddenly a shell struck the top, passed through the ceiling and wall and exploded making havoc of the cellar. Illustration, officers of the 15th New York 369th Infantry, marching in parade prior to the war. Left to right call, W.M. Hayward, Bart Williams, famous comedian and Dr. G. McSweeney. Illustration, after the war, one of the number of automobiles bearing wounded officers and soldiers of the 15th New York 369th Infantry. Major David Elias Piarancy with helmet and Major Elora Riolardi Spencer. Illustration, a representative group of Negro officers of Moss's Buffalo's 167th Infantry. The little lady with the bouquet is one of their French acquaintances. Illustration, Captain John H. Patton, RGIMEDAL adjutant, 8th Illinois Infantry. From June 26, 1916, to September 11, 1918, commanding 2nd Battalion, 370th Infantry. From September 11, 1918, to December 25, 1918, St. MIHIL Sector from June 21, 1918, to July 3, 1918, Argonne Forest from July 6, 1916, to August 15, 1918, Battles for Montessines, from September 16 to 30, 1918, Elias Olsen Offensive, from September 717, 1918, to November 11, 1918, awarded the French CRLIX to for meritorious service covering period from September 11th to November II, 1918, illustration, Emile Laurent, Negro Corporal of 8th Illinois 370th Infantry, a CRLIX to winner, engaged in field telephone service in a French wood, illustration, group of, hell fighters, 369th Infantry with their jewelry CRLIX to front row. Left to right. Eagle Eye, Edward Williams. Lamplight, Herb Taylor. Leon Trainer. Kid Hawk, Ralph Hawkins. Back row. Left to right. S.E.R.G.D. M.D.P.R.I. Amuse. S.E.R.G.D. Daniel Storms. Kid W.O.N.E. Joe Williams. Kid Buck, Alfred Honley and Corporation T.W. Taylor. Illustration, Drive Joseph H. Ward on Transport France. The only Negro attaining the rank of Major in the Medical Corps of the American Expeditionary Forces. Illustration, Captain Napoleon B. Marshall, famous Harvard athlete, who helped organize 15th New York and was one of its original Negro officers. He was seriously wounded at Metz. Illustration, Moss's Buffalo's 367th Infantry, reviewed by Governor W.H.I.D.M.A. and after flag presentation in front of Union League Club, New York. Illustration, the Buffalo's 367th Infantry, returning to New York after valiant service in France. 
their colors still flying. Illustration, soldiers who distinguished themselves at the fortress of Metz. Group belonging to 365th Infantry arriving at Chicago Station. Illustration, homeward bound in a Pullman car. No, Jim crowing there. The Negro bears on his shoulder the citation cord and emblem denoting valorous service. Lieutenant Walker, who arrived just at this time, took hold of matters with admirable coolness and presence of mind. Sergeant Elwood tried out the switchboard and found all lines broken. He also found on trying it the buzzer phone out. Lieutenant Walker gave orders to Private White to stay on the switchboard and Corporal Adolphus Johnson to stay on the buzzer phone. The 12-cord monocord board was nailed up by White and then began the connecting up of the lines from outside to the monocord board. All this time the shelling by the Germans was fierce and deadly. Shells struck all around the boys and one struck a nearby ammunition dump, causing the explosion of thousands of rounds of ammunition, which created a terrific shock and extinguished all the lights. But still the men worked on and would not leave the dangerous post, a veritable target for the enemy's big guns, until the lieutenant of the military police arrived and ordered them out. The 325th Field Signal Battalion was a great success. What the boys did not learn about radio, telephonic and telegraphic work would be of little advantage to anyone. It will be of great advantage to many of them in the way of making a living in times of peace. By the time the armistice stopped the fighting the different units of the 92nd Division had taken many prisoners and gained many objectives. They finally retired to the vicinity of Pont de Mousson, where time was spent salvaging material and cleaning equipment, while the men, knowing there was to be no more fighting, anxiously awaited the time until they were ordered to an embarkation point and thence home. The trip home in February, 1919, was about as perilous to some of them as the war had been. It was a period of unusually rough weather. The North Atlantic, never very smooth during the winter months, put on some extra touches for the returning Negro soldiers. An experience common to many on several different transports has been described by mechanic Charles E. Bryan of Battery B. 351st Artillery upon his return to his home. 5658 Frankstown Avenue, Pittsburgh, Pa. Asked about his impressions of the war. He said that which impressed him the most was the storm at sea on the way home. That storm beat the war all hollow. He said, me and my buddies were messing when the ship turned about 18 somersaults, and we all pitched on the floor, spilling soup and beans and things all over the ship. The lights went out and somehow the automatic bell which means abandoned ship was rung by accident. We didn't know it was an accident, and from the way the ship pitched we thought she was on her way down to a lookup one Mr. Davy Jones. So we made a break for the decks, and believe me, some of those lads who had come through battles and all sorts of dangers were about to take a dive over the side if our officers had not started explaining in time. Stories of varying degrees of interest, some thrilling, some humorous and some pathetic to the last degree, have been brought back. Ralph Tyler, the Negro newspaper man, who was sent to France as the official representative of the Afro-American press by the Committee on Public Information has written many of the incidents, and told others from the rostrum. He has told how the small insignificant, crowded freight cars in which the soldiers traveled looked like Pullman parlor coaches to the Negro soldiers. To many of our people back in the States, wrote Mr. Tyler from France, who saw our boys embark on fine American railroad coaches and Pullman sleepers to cover the first lap of their hoped-for pilgrimage to Berlin. The coaches they must ride in over here would arouse a mild protest. I stood at Vichon, one of France's many quaint old towns recently, 
and saw a long train of freight cars roll in en route to some point further distant, in these cars with but a limited number of boxes to sit upon, and just the floors to stand upon, were crowded some 1.000 of our own colored soldiers from the States, but a jollier crowd never rode through American cities in Pullman sleepers and diners than those 1.000 colored troopers, they accepted passage on these rude box freight cars cheerfully, for they knew they were now in war, and palace cars, downy coaches and the usual American railroad conveniences were neither available nor desirable. The point I wish to convey to the people back home is that did they but know how cheerfully, even eagerly our boys over here accept wartime conveniences, they would not worry quite so much about how the boys are faring. They are being wholesomely and plenteously fed, they are warmly clothed, they are cheerful and in complaining as they know this is war and for that reason know exactly what they must expect to the soldier who must at times sleep with but the canopy of heaven as a covering, and the earth as a mattress, a box freight car that shields him from the rain and wind is a real luxury, and he accepts it as such, there need not be any worry back home as to the maintenance of our colored soldiers over here, they receive the same substantial fare the white soldier receives, and the white soldier travels from point to point in the same box freight cars as afford means of passage for colored soldiers, in short, when it comes to maintenance and equipment, and consideration for the comfort of the American soldier, to use a trite saying, the folks are as good as the people, there is absolutely no discrimination, and the cheerfulness of those 1.000 boys whose freight cars became, in imagination, Pullman Palace cars, was the proof to me that the colored boys in the ranks are getting a 50-50 break, two more stories have come to me, continues Mr. Tyler, to prove that our colored soldiers preserve and radiate their humor even where shells and shrapnel fly thickest. A colored soldier slightly wounded in the Argonne fighting and let me assure you there was some fighting there sat down beside the road to await for a chance to ride to the field hospital. A comrade hastening forward to his place in the line, and anxious for the latest news of the progressing battle, asked the wounded brother if he had been in the fight, did he know all about it, and how were things going at the front. I sure does know all about it, the wounded man replied, well, what's happened to them, quickly asked the trooper on his way to the front, well, it was this way, replied the wounded one, I was climbing over some barbed wire trying to get to those DN Boshes, and they shot me, that's what I know about it, a company water cart was following the advancing troops when a German shell burst in the ditch almost beside the cart, the horse on the shell side was killed, and the driver was wounded in the head, while the blood from his wound ran freely down his face, the driver took one look at the wreckage, then started stumbling back along the road, a white lieutenant who had seen it all stopped the driver of the cart and said, the dressing station is, before he could finish his sentence, the wounded driver, with the blood flowing in rivulets down his face, said, dressing station hell, I'm looking for another horse to hitch to that cart and take the place of the one the shell put out of commission, that was a bit of nerve, grim humor and evidence of fidelity to duty, a mere wound in the head could not stop that driver from keeping up with the troops with a needed supply of water, Dr. Thomas Jesse Jones, who went to France under the auspices of the YMCA sent back the following account of the burial of a Negro soldier at sea, a colored soldier was buried at sea today, the flags on all the ships of the fleet have been at half-mast all day, it mattered not that the soldier came from a lowly cabin, it mattered not that his skin was black, he was a soldier in the Army of the United States, and was on his way to fight for democracy and civilization. 
the announcement of his death was signaled to every commander and every ship prepared to do honor to the colored soldier. As the sun was setting the guard of honor, including all the officers from commander down, came to attention. The body of the Negro trooper wrapped in the American flag, was tenderly carried to the stern of the ship. The chaplain read the solemn burial service. The engines of the fleet were checked. The troop ship was stopped for the only time in the long trip from America to Europe. The bugle sounded taps and the body of the American soldier was committed to the great ocean and to God. The comradeship of the solemn occasion was the comradeship of real democracy. There was neither black nor white, north nor south, rich nor poor, all united in rendering honor to the Negro soldier who died in the service of humanity. First Lieutenant George S. Rod of the 369th Infantry was cited for conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity above and beyond the call of duty in action with the enemy near Sechaoult, September 29 and 30, 1918. While leading his platoon in the assault at Sechaoult, Lieutenant Rod was severely wounded by machine gun fire, but rather than go to the rear for proper treatment, he remained with his platoon until ordered to the dressing station by his commanding officer. Returning within 45 minutes, he remained on duty throughout the entire night, inspecting his lines and establishing outposts. Early the next morning he was again wounded, once again displaying remarkable devotion to duty by remaining in command of his platoon. Later the same day a bursting shell added to more wounds, the same shell killing the captain and two other officers of his company. He then assumed command of the company and organized its position in the trenches displaying wonderful courage and tenacity at the critical times. He was the only officer of his battalion who advanced beyond the town and, by clearing machine gun and sniping posts, contributed largely to the aid of his battalion in holding its objective. His example of bravery and fortitude and his eagerness to continue with his mission despite the several wounds, set before the enlisted men of his command a most wonderful standard of morale and self-sacrifice. Lieutenant Rod lived at 308 S. 12th Street. Salina, Kansas, 2nd Lieutenant Harry C. Sessions, Company I 372nd Infantry, was cited for extraordinary heroism in action near Bussey Farm, September 29, 1918. Although he was on duty in the rear, Lieutenant Sessions joined his battalion and was directed by his battalion commander to locate openings through the enemy's wire and attack positions. He hastened to the front and cut a large opening through the wire in the face of terrific machine gun fire. Just as his task was completed, he was so severely wounded that he had to be carried from the field. His gallant act cleared the way for the rush that captured enemy positions. In August, 1918, back in the Champagne, a German raiding party captured a lieutenant and four privates belonging to the 369th Infantry, and was carrying them off when a lone Negro, Sergeant William Butler, a former elevator operator, made his presence known from a shell hole. He communicated with the lieutenant without the knowledge of the Germans and motioned to him to flee. The lieutenant signaled to the four privates to make a run from the Germans. As they started Butler yelled, Look out, you Bush Germans, here we come, and he let go with his pistol. He killed one Bosch officer and four privates, and his own men made good their escape. Later the German officer who had been in charge of this raiding party was captured and his written report was obtained. In it he said that he had been obliged to let his prisoners go because he was attacked by an overwhelming number of bloodlisted Schwarzeminer. The overwhelming number consisted of elevator operator Bill Butler alone. September 30th the 3rd Battalion, of the 370th Infantry, composed of downstate Illinois boys from Springfield, Peoria, 
Danville and Metropolis, achieved a notable victory at Firm de la Riviere. This battalion, under the brilliant leadership of Lieutenant Colonel Otis B. Duncan, made an advance of one kilometer against enemy machine gun nests and succeeded in silencing them, thereby allowing the line to advance. This battalion of the Illinois Downstate Boys succeeded in doing what, after three similar attempts by their French comrades in arms, had proven futile. During this engagement many were killed and wounded and many officers and men were sighted and given decorations. Company C of the 370th, under the command of Captain James H. Smith, a Chicago letter carrier, signally distinguished itself by storming and taking the town of Bob and capturing three pieces of field artillery. For this the whole company was sighted and the captain was decorated with the Croix de Guerre and Palm. Lieutenant Colonel Duncan, who has been attached to the Office of State Superintendent of Public Instruction of Illinois for over 20 years, is one of the greatest heroes the Negroes of America have produced. He returned as the ranking colored officer in the American Expeditionary Forces. Instead of being merely an assistant colonel, he was actively in command of one of the hardest fighting battalions in the regiment. He has been pronounced a man of native ability, an able tactician and of natural military genius. Served, Norman Henry, 5127 Dearborn Street, Chicago, attached to the 3D Machine Gun Company, 370th Infantry, won the Croix de Guerre and Distinguished Service Cross. It was in the Soissons Sector September 30th in the first rush on the Hindenburg Line. All of the officers and men fell under a heavy machine gun barrage except two squads of which Sergeant Henry was left in command. They took to German dugouts and were cut off from their own line without food. They held the Germans off with one machine gun for three days. Often the gun became jammed, but they would take it apart and fix it before the enemy could get to them. Loot. Samuel S. Gordon. 3934 Indiana Avenue. Chicago. Of the 370th Infantry exposed himself to open machine gun fire for six hours and effected the rescue of two platoons which had been cut off by the barrage. Company H had been badly cut up in a sudden burst of machine gun fire. Lieutenant Gordon with some men were rushed up to array.